At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is the 283rd episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White, and this is going to be another one of those long and informational podcasts continuing in my life history of fishes. Everything you need to know about a specific species, except how to catch them. We're going to go from freshwater fish this time, we're going to dive into saltwater next time. This is everything you need to know about grayling, except how to catch them. And I want to give a thanks to my mate Andy Gray in Oxford, England, for introducing me to grayling. For I had never encountered a grayling before we had fished together in the Cotswolds. He showed me them in a shallow stream behind a pub along a small trail in an absolutely stunning landscape in the Cotswolds. So in this podcast, I'm going to discuss grayling, Timalis Timalis, which is the regular grayling I saw there. But I'm going to focus mostly on the Arctic grayling, Timalis arcticus, or Arctic grayling, Timalis arcticus montanus. Things I set out to do in this podcast was to find some answers. Specifically, what are the evolutionary adaptations that cause grayling to have such a distinctive look? There are key identifying characteristics that make them look like half trout and half whitefish. Why do they have such a big dorsal fin? And what is the purpose of that? And specifically, why is their mouth shaped exactly where it is? And how do they adapt to that? Humans are very similar, except look at our shoes. Every person is going to wear a different pair of shoes based on what they're doing. Charles Darwin noted this when he viewed different species of Galapagos finches and their beaks, each adapted to a different way of feeding. Why do grayling have that little mouth? We'll see if I find the answer. What I'm going to talk about today is 
some new vocabulary terms, the taxonomy of grayling, their history in geologic time, a physical description, their range and geographic distribution plus their migration patterns, their diet and feeding, reproduction and life cycle, their economic importance, conservation, and we'll follow up with some miscellaneous information following that. And you can always contact me if you would like to find the sources of all of this information. I can send you either the links or this whole document. Some new terms, fluvial, fish that spawn in tributary streams where the young rear from one to four years of age before migrating to a river system where they grow to maturity, relating to or inhabiting a river or stream, and produced by the action of a river or stream. Conversely, we have adfluvial, fish that spawn in tributary streams where the young rear from one to four years before migrating to a lake system where they grow to maturity. Lacustrine is a lake-dwelling organism. Polyandry, or polygonandrous, is a promiscuous organism. It's a mating system in which both males and females have multiple mating partners during a breeding season. Two or more males have an exclusive relationship with two or more females. This is a strategy used by males to increase their reproductive fitness. Frazzle ice is a collection of loose, randomly oriented plate or discoid ice crystals formed in supercooled, turbulent water. Blaster mining, P-L-A-C-E-R, usually aimed at removing gold from stream sediments and floodplains. Because placer mining often occurs within a stream bed, it is an environmentally destructive type of mining, releasing large quantities of sediment that can impact surface water for several miles downstream on their placer mine, which is why I wonder why they have TV shows promoting gold dredging in streams. It's horrific. Interoperity, I-T-E-R-O-P-A-R-I-T-Y, is characterized by multiple reproductive cycles over the course of its lifetime. The final vocabulary term before your quiz is oviparous, producing young by means of eggs that are hatched after they have been laid by the parent. Let's discuss taxonomy now of grayling. They're the kingdom Animalia, phylum chordata, class Actinopterygii, order Salmoniformes, family Salmonidae, subfamily Timalinae, Genus Timalis, species T. Timalis and T. Arcticus. We're going to talk about Timalis Timalis first. The name of the genus Timalis was first given to Grayling or T. Timalis, described in the 1758 edition of Systema Naturae by Swedish zoologist Carl Linnaeus. We also know him as Carl von Linnaeus or Carl Linné. Originates from the faint smell of the herb thyme which emanates from the flesh. Grayling are the only species of the genus Timalis. Timalis arcticus was named in 1776 by German zoologist Peter Simon Pallas from specimens collected in Russia. Their common name, the generic name Timalis, derives from the Greek thyme smell, a name derived from the fragrance of wild thyme that freshly caught graylings are believed to smell, similar to which we learned from Andy in the Cotswolds. 
Grayling are freshwater fish in the salmon family. Atlantic salmon, Salmo salar, shares a more recent common ancestor with the outgroup Timalis arcticus, which is arctic grayling, than it does with sockeye salmon. The term grayling is often used to refer generically to the Timalis species, and the Timalis is sometimes called the European grayling for clarity. There are many obsolete synonyms for the species. There's another grayling known as the Australian grayling, Prototrotes marina. This is a primarily freshwater fish found in the coastal rivers of southeastern mainland Australia and Tasmania. In past decades, it has also been known as the cucumber mullet or cucumber herring for its cucumber-like odor. And there are 14 known species in the northern hemisphere of true grayling. I have 13 common names. The common European grayling, the Arctic grayling, which can be the Baikal black grayling, the Baikal white grayling, the Amur grayling, the Kamchatka grayling, and the North American grayling, which will be the topic of this episode because more information is available about the North American grayling than other grayling out there. There's the Mongolian grayling, the yellow-spotted grayling, Kozogal grayling, East Siberia grayling, Upper Yenisei grayling, and the Lower Amur grayling. Let's discuss the history now of these fish. The grayling is known as the lady of the stream in Europe. It is historically persecuted by anglers for the false perception that they stop trout colonizing stretches of rivers and streams. Lewis and Clark made note of these new kind of white or silvery trout in 1805, and they are an indicator species for cold water streams. The description of a grayling. Arctic grayling grow to a maximum recorded length of 76 centimeters or 30 inches and a maximum recorded weight of 3.8 kilograms or 8.4 pounds. They've been known to grow to a maximum recorded length of 60 centimeters or 24 inches approximately 15 to 36 centimeters long, and the common length for Arctic grayling is 34.3 centimeters or 13.5 inches. The maximum weight recorded for grayling is 6.7 kilograms or 15 pounds. The average weight is 1 to 2 kilograms. Individuals of the species have been recorded as reaching an age of 14 years. Timalis arcticus arcticus has been recorded as reaching an age of 18 years. There's also reports of a 32-year-old fish. The oldest recorded age of Arctic grayling was 18 years. Arctic grayling are larger and thicker than that of its cousin, salmon, trout, and char. And the maximum age for grayling ranges from age 10 to 29, depending on the river system and method of age determination. Physical Description the appearance of the fish is often in dispute from various sources, depending on factors which are influenced by its diet and food supply, including lighting at a given time. Arctic grayling are larger and thicker than that of its cousins, salmon, trout, and char, which I mentioned above. Grayling can be distinguished from all other salmonids by the presence of a large, sail-like dorsal fin, elongated, laterally compressed, and trout-like body with short heads large eyes, and the iris of their eyes is often gold in color. They have small toothed mouths. Mouth shape dictates evolution of feeding methods. A small mouth slightly behind the nose 
befits a bottom-feeding fish. A black slash lies on each side of the lower jaw. Arctic grayling's backs are usually dark. The dorsal surface of the body is often the darkest, with dark purple or black to blue-gray coloring. They have forked tails. That is it for what I could find on how and why their mouth evolved to be located and shaped where it is. Their dorsal fins are typically fringed in red and dotted with large iridescent red, aqua, or purple spots and markings. The dorsal fin is sail-like with as many as 17 to 25 rays, and it's sometimes taller than the width of the fish's body. Female dorsal fins tend to be rounded while males are more pointed. Thus, these exhibit sexual dimorphism. The sides have tiny scales exhibiting a variety of colors, from iridescent gray to light greenish blue. Their sides can be black, silver, gold, or blue. The sides of the body and head can be freckled with black spots. Patterns of numerous V-shaped or diamond-shaped spots are also common. A band of gold forms a border between their sides and white bellies, which are in sharp contrast to their pelvic fins, striated with iridescent orange, red, or pink. There is a dark midlateral band between the pectoral and pelvic fins, and the flanks may possess a pink iridescence. Lateral line stretches the length of their body. Only their adipose, caudal tail, pectoral, and anal fins are without much color, typically dull and gray. Arctic grayling are distinguished from their similar grayling by the absence of dorsal and anal spines and by the presence of a larger number of soft rays in these fins. Grayling that live in the clearest waters tend to exhibit brighter colors. Coloration can vary from stream to stream. There is sexual dimorphism in coloration with males having more orange, light green, and blue-colored scales than females, which have more dull and dark-colored scales. The male graylings are more vibrant than the females in general, although both genders subtly display their beauty over their natural gray undertones. Some of these fish even have a pink tint to their shiny skin. Range and geographic distribution plus migration. A grayling-like fossil named proto Thymalis was found in the Miocene deposits in Germany, and grayling are native to 30 countries. The fishes of this genus are native to the northern parts of the Palearctic and Nearctic ecozones, ranging from the United Kingdom and northern European across Asia to Siberia, as well as northern North America. Thymalis thymalis, the grayling, is widespread in Europe. Timalus arcticus, the arctic grayling, is widespread throughout Eurasia, east of the Ural Mountains, and in the Nearctic. The other species have more localized ranges in northern Asia. You probably guessed that based on their names from earlier. Historically, they were found throughout the Arctic as far west as the Kara River in Russia, as far east as the western shores of the Hudson Bay in Canada, eh? and as far south as Michigan. Go Buckeyes! In Alaska, grayling have the largest natural range of any sport fish, occupying nearly the whole state, which we'll find out about in next week's interview. One of the most widely distributed species in the Western Arctic is the Arctic grayling. Though they live with other salmonids in the same ecosystem, grayling frequently occupy different regions in the same river 
or stream and remain primarily within the current of the stream rather than the edges. Arctic grayling can move through saline waters and are captured regularly in nearshore coastal waters in Arctic Canada and Alaska with salinities up to 18 parts per trillion. There are six grayling species in the northern hemisphere, but the Arctic grayling is the only species found in North America. Scandinavia, they occur in clear lakes and freshened part of northern Baltic Basin. They were introduced to Morocco in 1948, but it does not appear to have become established there. They are not found in Ireland. In Europe, the Barents Sea Basin west of the Earls, the Caspian, the Black, the Baltic, White and North Sea Basins, Atlantic westward to the Loire drainage, Rhone drainage, Northern Adriatic Basin, east to the Soka drainage. They were introduced over most of southern and central Finland. Grayling are obligate, cool, or cold water dwelling species. They prefer fresh water. As mentioned, they can be found in brackish water. They are benthopelagic. They inhabit open waters of clear, cold, medium to large rivers and lakes. I'll talk about more of that later. They occur in Piedmont and Montane cold streams, rivers, and lakes. Their annual migrations, the Arctic grayling specifically, can involve travel through estuarine waters. Again, that's the brackish mentioned before. They inhabit some montane reaches of rivers with a hard sand or stone bottom, as well as oxygenated, cold, and fast-flowing water. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com They prefer cold, clean, running, riverine waters with a pH range of 7.0 to 7.5. They like open water of clear cold, 47 to 52 degrees Fahrenheit, medium to large rivers and lakes. They also occur in lakes and exceptionally in brackish waters around the Baltic Sea. Adults move to pools after spawning. They spend their winters in deep water. That's going to be very in-depth later. They also like high-altitude lakes and rivers. They live in deep pools with woody debris for opportunistic feeding and hide in deep water from potential predators. Adult grayling often use debris, rubble, in the 7.62 to 12.7 centimeter and cobble greater than 12.7 centimeters as cover. Thus, they're benthopelagic, the bottom of the water. They sometimes use overhanging riparian vegetation undercut banks, and deadfalls as cover, and seldom use aquatic or emergent vegetation. When disturbed, grayling and stream pools seek the deepest water first, and then move to the downstream end of the pool. They're gregarious. They form schools. They usually live in hollows behind boulders and shaded water under overhanging vegetation. Now more specifically for the Arctic version, which again... Just say this over and over is the main focus of this. Arctic grayling 
Timaeus arcticus, is a species of freshwater fish in the salmon family, Salmonidae. Arctics are widespread throughout the Arctic and Pacific drainages in Canada, Alaska, and Siberia, as well as the upper Missouri River drainage in Montana. The native range formally extended south into the Great Lakes Basin in Michigan. They occur naturally in the Arctic Ocean Basin in Siberia, from the Ob to the Yenisei drainages, and in European Russia in some tributaries of the Pechora River. Two distinct populations historically inhabited waters in Michigan and Montana. The distinct population of Arctic grayling in Michigan is now extinct. North America Widespread in Arctic drainages from Hudson Bay, Canada to Alaska and in Arctic and Pacific drainages from central Alberta and British Columbia to Canada. Upper Missouri River drainages in Montana, USA, formerly in Great Lake Basins in Michigan. Arctic grayling are still present in southwestern Montana. Unfortunately, there has been a significant decline in the range and abundance of the distinct population that was widespread in the Missouri River Basin above Great Falls, Montana, the only remaining natural native remnant population in the continental United States is the Big Hole River, Montana, upstream from Divide, Montana. The Arctic grayling in Montana is currently ranked as S1. S1 means at high risk because of extremely limited and or rapidly declining population numbers, range, and or habitat, making it highly vulnerable to global extinction or extirpation in the state. Grayling are at an extremely high risk of extirpation in the state due to very limited and or rapidly declining population numbers, range, and or habitat. There are remnant native populations of fluvial Arctic grayling in the upper Missouri River drainage in the Big Hole River and Red Rock Basin, known as the Montana Arctic grayling. Fluvial Arctic grayling have been reestablished in the upper Ruby River a tributary of the Beaverhead River. Lacustrine or lake-dwelling forms of Arctic grayling have been introduced in suitable lake habitats throughout the Rocky Mountains, including lakes in the Teton Range in Wyoming and the High Unida Mountains in Utah. Get me two. And a lemonade. Cascade Mountains and Sierra Nevada Mountains as far south as Arizona. They were also stocked at Toppings Lake by the Teton Range, and in various lakes in the high United Mountains in Utah, as well as various alpine lakes of the Boulder Mountain chain in central Idaho. Until the 1930s, they were found in Michigan and in the upper Missouri drainage of Montana. Now, they are hatchery cultured in those states and have been introduced into mountainous areas of Colorado, Utah, get me too, and Vermont. In the U.S. state of Arizona, an introduced population is found in the Lee Valley and other lakes in the White Mountains. Authorized stockings for sport fishing, first docked in Arizona in 1943, first docked in Connecticut in 1870s, and they were stocked in Nebraska in 1939. Now, let's discuss those three types of Arctic grayling, fluvial, lacustrine, and patamadribus. Fluvial is river-running populations. They live and spawn in rivers. Fluvial populations of Arctic grayling existed in only two places in the lower 48 states, Michigan and the upper Missouri River in Montana. 
they use the river for spawning and rearing habitat, seasonal feeding habitat for all life stages, and sometimes provide overwintering habitat for young of the year. Additionally, the river is used as a migratory corridor for juveniles and adults. Lacustrine populations live in lakes and spawn in lakes. In lakes, adult grayling occur over sand, silt, gravel, and rubble substrates and along rocky shorelines, typically at depths of less than four meters. Lacustrine arctic grayling use lakes for spawning and rearing habitat, seasonal feeding habitat for all life stages, sometimes to provide overwintering habitat for young of the year, and migratory corridors for juveniles and adults. The patadromous populations that live in lakes and spawn in tributary streams are adfluvial lacustrine. Patadromous populations are those that live in lakes and spawn in tributary streams. Further, we have adfluvial lacustrine, which is spawning typically occurs in small tributaries or near inlets of lakes and lake outlets. There are specific locations and seasonal migrations of Arctic grayling. Arctics are very territorial, with the largest and strongest fish occupying the most advantageous position in a pool. Feeding territories are established and maintained through a series of ritual challenge displays. Territoriality and social hierarchy develop quickly in each pool. The largest and strongest fish occupy the most advantageous positions near the head of the pool. Smaller and subordinate fish are located farther downstream and the smallest of all occupying the foot of the pool without any territories. Womp womp. The older, larger adults tend to lay claim to the cooler upper reaches of rivers and stream systems. The sub-adults occupy the middle, while juveniles live in the lower reaches of a river, where water is warmer in the lower river, which helps speed growth. Fish are generally found in schools, often in association with other cold water fishes, such as salmon, lake trout, rainbow trout, and whitefish. Grayling will leave their summertime streams in late fall before freeze-up and migrate to larger, deeper lakes and rivers, many of which are glacially fed. It may be that the presence of Arctic grayling in estuarine waters is, in some cases, incidental, resulting from fish being swept downstream during snowmelt runoff in the spring. During the early spring, the estuarine waters are at an annual salinity low and could provide an important dispersal corridor between drainages. The nearshore marine environment may also provide abundant food resources. Adult Arctic grayling have been found migrating in the autumn from several drainages, through brackish waters and into Alaska's Hula Hula River to overwinter. Arctic grayling in Montana have been recorded swimming 60 miles in between habitats in the Big Hole River. Some grayling migrate to take advantage of different streams for spawning, for growth, for summer feeding, and overwintering, while other grayling may complete their entire life in only one short section of a single stream or lake. In summer, and specifically in late spring to early summer, these fish will migrate upstream to their traditional spawning areas. Growing and feeding time is approximately three months out of the year. Larger fish 
are usually found in cooler upstream reaches of the river, while juveniles typically live downstream and lower reaches. Fry and older fish are found together. Fry tend to remain in very shallow waters, while larger juveniles and mature fish remain in deeper areas. This is presumably a behavioral adaptation, allowing all sizes of classes of grayling to inhabit a particular stream without older fish cannibalizing smaller ones. To avoid glacial stream melt in the summer due to silt, they are going to be higher up in the stream, which is colder and is going to provide less metabolic advantages for growth. Winter. In the early fall, grayling begin to slowly migrate back to overwintering areas, which are typically downstream of feeding areas. During the winter, these fish are found in the deep pools of river systems where the water never freezes during the winter. Typically, these fish overwinter in a lake or sections of a stream that are downstream of feeding areas. Long overwinter periods can be approximately 8 to 10 months of ice cover. They're faced with trade-offs between energy allocation to grow and energy storage, primarily in the form of lipids, which is fats, prior to overwintering. Smaller fish tend to be more susceptible to overwinter mortality due to relatively higher basal metabolism and subsequent exhaustion of energy reserves. A major source of winter mortality in underyearling fish is depletion of lipid reserves. These fish have evolved strategies to meet the needs of life in harsh and uncertain environments for sure. Diet and feeding. Here is an example from Mongolia's Yenisei River. It has been shown that the intensity of fish feeding is relatively stable throughout the year, despite significant fluctuations in zoobenthos biomass. The contribution of groups dominating in diet, amphipods and larvae of caddisflies changed depending on the month. Amphipods prevail in the diet of fish during the periods from June to October, and caddisflies prevail in the winter and spring months. Among caddisflies, selective feeding on a specific species, Apatania crimorphila, has been revealed. It has been assumed that changes in the ratio of weight and linear sizes of fish are associated not only with an increase in the water temperature, but also with the grayling switching to the consumption of amphipods with a higher nutrition value. Throughout their distribution, both adults and juveniles eat a wide variety of seasonally available foods. Grayling and trout feed on different prey items and generally prefer different microhabitats within rivers and streams, but do occupy similar niches to smaller, less predatory trout. Arctic grayling feed on available macroinvertebrates that originate from both aquatic and terrestrial habitats. They are a visual predator. They're a visual opportunistic feeder. Because grayling are visual predators, their feeding success is vulnerable to increase in water turbidity. The species' ability to locate prey declines rapidly as turbidity increases. Again, these are very territorial organisms. The largest and strongest fish occupy the most advantageous position in a pool. Feeding territories are established and maintained 
through a series of ritual challenge displays. As the Arctic grayling grows, the mouth rises wider in capacity, increasing the amount of food that can be eaten. The most intense appetites are found at dawn and dusk, as the hungry graylings compete in the pools for the best bites. Their migration patterns for food only exist for salmon eggs, not for any of their drift or other prey diet items. Occasionally, graylings will impose upon territory and eat salmon eggs in the process of incubation. The young feed on zooplankton with a gradual shift to immature insects. The immature fish feed on zooplankton and insect larvae. Adults mainly feed on surface insects, but also take in fishes, fish eggs, lemmings, and planktonic crustaceans. Larger specimens become piscivorous. Feeding changes with weather. Grayling dive to deeper depths of water to eat plankton and larvae while they conserve energy under ice through the winter. Arctic grayling can tolerate low dissolved oxygen levels, a common condition beneath the ice. This ability allows grayling to survive the long winters in areas where many other fish would die. Adult grayling feeding on drifting streams appear to position themselves on the basis of water depth and flow so as to maximize their net energy intake, not on the proximity to overhead cover. These fish prey opportunistically on fish eggs and fry, including those of their own species. Their reliance on surface drift and on terrestrial insects changes over the open water season in response to food availability. Little is known of their fall and winter diets, but it will shift away from terrestrial biota to almost entirely aquatic biota, and foraging patterns will likely shift from a surface and midwater focus to midwater and bottom. Amphipods may constitute a greater proportion of the diet of grayling in lakes than in streams. In Alaska, researchers have found that some grayling eat voles, finding up to seven voles in the stomach of one well-fed grayling. One grayling had seven shrews in its stomach. Another stomach contained 65 chum salmon smolt, small salmon that were headed out to sea. If you want to match the hatch, this is what they eat. Their diet primarily consists of drifting invertebrates, aquatic and terrestrial invertebrates, black flies, caddisflies, cladocerans, also known as water fleas, crustaceans, fish larvae, mayflies, mollusks, occasionally fish eggs, small fishes, smaller fish such as the Eurasian minnows, spiders, stoneflies, vegetable matter, worms, and zooplankton. Miscellaneous items found in their stomach contents are caribou hair, feathers, sticks, plastic ribbons, and rocks. Grayling get eaten too. Grayling are also prey for larger fish, including the huchen, hucho hucho, and northern pike. Eagles, ospreys, gulls, minks, and otters all prey on grayling. Now we're going to get into the intricacies of their migration, which I find very interesting for an organism that lives in such a harsh environment. And now we're going to find out the purpose of that sail-like dorsal fin. 
Arctic grayling are not garters. They're brood hiders. They do not construct a red. A red, R-E-D-D, is a nest made by some fishes. They're polygamous. Polyandry in fish is a mating system where females mate with multiple males within one mating season. Arctic grayling alter their behavior to give them better abilities to spawn and reproduce. Arctic grayling are oviparous and they lay eggs in the spring when ice begins to break up. They begin to spawn between the ages of four and seven and at a length of about 255 to 305 millimeters or around 10 to 12 inches. The majority of spawners are six to nine years old. Grayling demonstrate interoperity. Interoperous means if it is characterized by multiple reproductive cycles over the course of its lifetime. Male and females spawn each year once they are sexually mature. Spawning takes place over a two to three week period and then they return to rocky streams when they're done. In early spring, Grayling begin to congregate at the mouths of clear water streams and rivers just before breakup of ice. Arctic grayling prefer clear, bog-fed streams with rapid runoff for spawning. Grayling spawning success appears to be strongly affected by stream obstructions, which are in part dependent on the timing and magnitude of the spring discharge. Elevated culverts, outlets, Beaver dams and hydroelectric impoundments can also prevent fish from accessing spawning habitats. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. When spawning runs are delayed, females continue to ripen and once released, do not move as far upstream as controlled fish. If you're going to do an experiment and you want to delay them, they're going to be just too heavy. Their energy is spent on eggs, not in migration now. Now, this distance reduction suggests that delays may force them to spawn in suboptimal habitats, which could decrease recruitment. The most marked changes in spawning conditions occur among females during the first three days of delay. Consequently, spawning delays for Arctic grayling should not exceed three days. The effects of delays on egg viability is unknown. The traveling distance can be less than a kilometer or up to 160 kilometers. That's 100 miles. In the spring, adult Arctic grayling move into tributaries and male Arctic grayling begin to establish territories before the females arrive. When spring approaches, Arctic grayling gather in large groups to run upstream to the spawning areas, migrate up to 100 miles from the wintering waters, and spawning occurs in the spring when the water temperature reaches 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. They spawn in montane streams with heavy current on shallows with rocky gravel bottoms. Arctic grayling spawn in spring in shallow areas of rivers with moderate current as well as gravel or rocky areas with a substrate composed of fine sand sediments. 
They breed in shallow water stretches, usually 20 to 40 centimeters deep, or riffles with moderate current of about 0.5 meters per second and clean gravel bottoms. Both fluvial and adfluvial grayling populations spawn primarily in shallow water less than one meter. Spawning substrate range from silt to cobble and boulders, but most spawning occurs over relatively small, unembedded gravels about 2.5 centimeter in diameter. Spawning in lakes is rare. Some northern Alaskan lakes spawning occurs in the lakes over substrates ranging from large rubble to vegetated silt. Males arrive on the spawning ground first and establish and defend that rectangular territory with the long axis parallel to the stream flow. Males that cannot establish a territory move downstream into a refuge area where females wait too. Females cruise through the males' territories looking for mates. Males establish spawning territories and will follow a female and court her with a display of the dorsal fin. Males are territorial and court females by flashing their colorful dorsal fins. Long dorsal fins are used in threat displays, but it is important during spawning. Males use the fin as a clasping organ to hold the female. He then drifts over beside her and curves his extended dorsal fin over the female. During the mating season, males defend their spawning area up to seven days against other males. Spawning occurs during daylight hours, but the majority of spawning occurring from midday through late afternoon, when the water temperature peaks for the day. A female may spawn only once or several times in different areas, sometimes with a delay before her second spawn. Arctic grayling are promiscuous. Males mate several times with several females, and females mate more than once with several males. Females do not exhibit agnostic or aggressive fighting behavior during the season. During the act of mating, other males will try to beat other males off of prospective mates. Females can also just swim off. Less than 50%, less than 50% of all spawning attempts are actually completed due to interference by other fish or the female moving away from the male. Male fins are also used to brace receptive females to aid in the mating process. Females release all their eggs in one act. They may not be able to spawn more than once. During the vibratory release of milt and roe, the vibration of the tails during the spawning act stirs up the substrate and produces a slight depression. Although they do not excavate a red in the substrate, the physical act of mating kicks up a large amount of substrate that serves as a sort of nest for the egg. The highly energetic courtship and mating tends to kick up fine material which covers the zygotes, a zygote being a fertilized egg. The eggs themselves are about 2.5 millimeters or one-tenth inch in diameter. Eggs continue to grow during the winter and just prior to spawning in spring. The eggs of mature females increase in diameter during the course of the summer. Eggs are slightly heavier than water, so they sink to the bottom, lodging in between pebbles and gravel. Depending on the size of the female, she may lay between 1,500 and 30,000 eggs, each about 2.5 millimeters in diameter. The female will release eggs 4,700 plus per female, 
which the male covers with milt over a sandy gravel bottom. The eggs are adhesive and stick to that substrate and other bottom structures. The row or eggs are left on the bottom of the stream bed to mix with the milt, the sperm, which were released by the males. Males is plural. The eggs sink to the bottom and become lodged between pebbles and gravel. Only about 10% of the fry that hatch from the eggs will reach adulthood and be able to spawn. Because fry are helpless in water currents for two weeks after hatching, flooding or drought during this period may cause high mortalities, either by washing them downstream into unfavorable habitats or by stranding them in shallow, isolated pools. The zygote is small. It's approximately 3 millimeters or 0.1 inch in diameter. The embryo will hatch after two to three weeks, and the females leave and find another prospective male to mate with and leave the zygotes to be covered by the substrate and to survive on their own. The fish are non-garters. The eggs are left to mix with the substrate and are left to fend for themselves. The newly emerged fry look like a 13 millimeter or half inch piece of thread with two eyes. Their length and emergence varies among systems ranging from about 7 to 15 millimeters and the fry are helpless in water currents for two weeks after hatching. The newly hatched embryo remains in the substrate until all of the yolk has been absorbed. Fry are now miniature versions of adults. The fry immediately move toward the calm and warm shorelines where they will become juveniles at 5 to 10 centimeters by the end of summer. They immediately move toward the calm and warm shoreline waters where they grow quickly, reaching that length of up to 2 to 4 inches by the end of summer. During their first several weeks of life, they tend to congregate in small, dense schools. They emerge at a length of around 12 to 18 millimeters, at which time they form shoals at the river margins. Within less than a week of birth, the grayling will begin hunting for food and eating. Many grayling begin foraging the day they hatch, while some procrastinators save the appetite until the last possible moment 96 hours later. At this point in their life, feeding is such a desperate act that they will literally eat anything, even if it is not food. The juveniles grow quickly during their first two years of life. Within one summer, you can anticipate a highly successful grayling growing up to six inches in length, if it's lucky. Later, they become more solitary and hide between rocks in the stream bed. They continue to grow quickly during the next three to six years until they become mature. At this point, they begin to grow much more slowly as they dedicate more of their annual energy intake to spawning efforts. The growth rate of Arctic grayling is among the fastest for Arctic fish in the many streams and lakes. Researchers note that grayling embryos and hatchlings are exposed to increasingly colder temperatures as they develop. At these life stages, Arctic grayling are exposed to microbial bacteria pathogens that are often temperature and sex specific and result in behavioral and immunological responses. While this does not directly affect the sex determination of individuals, studies show that male grayling appear to have a sex-specific behavior or tolerance to warm temperatures that female grayling do not have. Young-of-the-year grayling in streams 
inhabit shallow pools and side channels with water velocities less than 80 centimeters and depths of 5 to 50 centimeters over silt to boulder substrates. The availability of cover in the form of overhead vegetation or boulders is also an important factor in stream habitat use by young of the year grayling. As summer goes on, the young stray further from cover and occupy areas with higher water velocities and deeper water columns. Some fry age zero and juveniles age one leave the stream habitats in late summer and fall, mid-August through mid-October, while others extend their stream residence into the fall and leave under the ice, possibly to avoid predation by larger graylings in the lake. Young of the year remain in their natal stream for up to 15 months. Little is known of habitats selected by young of the year grayling associated with lakes. Yearling and juvenile grayling undertake yearly migrations between feeding areas and small tributaries and overwintering areas. Some juveniles remain in their natal stream feeding, while others move to other areas of the river system. Juvenile grayling are seldom observed schooling. Fish of age one are territorial throughout the summer feeding period. Juveniles are distributed in the middle and lower reaches and delta areas of small tributaries during the summer. As they grow larger, individuals tend to maintain territories further upstream. For grayling that are up to three years old, foraging and hunting for food often end in their own fatality. The small size of juvenile grayling makes it easy prey for larger fish like the brown trout for them to be gorged upon. After the spawn or post-spawn, Montana Arctic grayling grow quickly in the Big Hole River, reaching full sexual maturity and size by age three and rarely living beyond five years. In contrast, Arctic grayling in Alaska mature from age four to eight and can live up to 12 years. Fast-growing rates and short lifespans mean that poor recruitment in a given year may have a lasting effect on the Montana population. After spawning, adults establish summertime territories in pools, generally farther upstream from the spawning site, the majority moving downstream in mid-September. During the summer feeding season, females and smaller males also maintain territories. After their first spawning, grayling sometimes skip a year before spawning again. After spawning, the adults move to a more or less permanent summer residence, usually upstream in pools. During the summer feeding period, after spawning, adults in rivers prefer areas of rubble and gravel. The summer distribution of Arctic grayling is significantly influenced by flow and water temperature. Summer territoriality appears to depend upon the presence of adequate current, as otherwise, there is little advantage to maintaining an upstream position so as to have the first opportunity to capture food carried downstream into a pool. As fall comes to a close, the Arctic grayling migrate towards the depths of rivers and lakes to live passively through the winter. Arctic grayling are some of the only aquatic animals that can survive the low oxygen levels in the depths of freezing lakes. The evolutionary feature makes them unique and fit for that habitat. From summer feeding areas, 
they find a suitable wintering spot where they spend eight to nine months under ice. Some fish overwinter in deeper spring-fed pools, while others leave the spring-fed tributaries, perhaps due to the risk of injury or death from frazzle ice. The economic importance of grayling is not just based on anglers. Arctic grayling is one of the most economically important species being raised commercially and fished for sport. There's conservation issues as well. Grayling are a protected species listed in Appendix 3 of the Bern Convention. It has been critically endangered in the Baltic Sea. Arctic grayling are considered a secure species throughout their range, although some populations at the southern extent of its native range have been extirpated. It remains widespread elsewhere and is not listed on the red list of threatened species. Factors potentially threatening persistence of fluvial arctic grayling include water quality and quantity, competition with introduced species, predation, habitat degradation, and negative effects of angling. Water quantity issues include drought, irrigation withdrawals, and recruitment limitations due to sudden runoff events. Water quality and quantity, competition with introduced species, climate change, habitat degradation, and exploitation by anglers affect grayling. While doing the research for this, I came across 40-year-old documents stating that a warming climate will negatively affect grayling. We've done nothing in 40 years to prevent that. Good on us. Introduction of competing non-native fishes, such as brown trout and brook trout, and the fragmentation of migration pathways by the construction of Hegbin Dam outside the park in Montana have also negatively affected grayling. Competition for food with other salmonid species may be a factor in the displacement of Arctic grayling from some regions and may limit their growth in some stream habitats. Loss of hydrological integrity also affects grayling. Placer mining sedimentation damages their gills. They are unsuccessfully able to pass through dams with turbines. Because Arctic grayling feed heavily on terrestrial insects at the surface, they may be particularly susceptible to insecticide sprays and chemical spills that reduce or contaminate these sources of food. Construction methods that reduce or eliminate groundwater discharge in grayling streams could also stress populations. A reduction or cessation of groundwater could increase stream temperature in the summer and eliminate overwintering refuges in the winter. Groundwater discharge areas may also be used by Arctic grayling for spawning as they provide a stable environment for egg incubation. Log driving in streams during spawning or larval development contributed to the extirpation of grayling in Michigan. It likely did so by reworking the stream bed in the swift, shallow areas where the grayling spawned, dislodging eggs and destabilizing spawning substrate. The introduction of parasites or diseases into systems could alter fish populations and should be discouraged. The presence of large numbers of grayling in small streams at spawning time and their indifference to angling before and during spawning, frustrates anglers who sometimes resort to illegal methods such as snagging and spearing to catch these fish. Fish and eggs in shallow, clear spawning streams are also vulnerable to disturbance by anglers wading in the streams. 
culverts increase water velocity, preventing migration to spawning areas. River discharge and water temperatures are two important habitat variables that may be altered by climate change and may influence the long-term survival and population dynamics of grayling and Arctic tundra streams. Arctic grayling growth is reduced in years of low flows and high temperatures. Climactic warming may stress Arctic grayling populations. As water levels in tundra streams decline over the summer, young-of-the-year grayling can also become trapped in side channels. There is no direct evidence that forest fires affected Arctic grayling populations in small mountain lakes. However, forest fires may have indirect effects by increasing sediment runoff. Stocking newly hatched grayling into rivers has not been successful, but stocking with fry aged greater than three months has been successful in creating self-sustaining populations, as have transplanting adult and sub-adult grayling into barren lakes. There is little or no survival of grayling fry when they are stocked into lakes with predators such as northern pike, Esox lucius. And finally, Arctic grayling may travel more than 160 kilometers in one year. The heaviest published weight for an Arctic grayling was 8.4 pounds. An Arctic grayling in Montana have been recorded swimming 60 miles in between habitats in the big hole of Montana. And there you have it. The life history of the grayling and the Arctic grayling. This may be the most comprehensive list of information on grayling out there as I spent many an hour researching this. If you would like to read this or to visit some of the links where I sourced this, please contact me through my website. Thank you very much for listening to this. I know it's long-winded and maybe boring, but I find this very important in the continuing of my education of fly anglers that voluntarily listen to my podcast. So thank you for listening. Please visit my site and go to Etsy if you are in need of beer can koozies that you can wear around your neck custom hand-tied bass flies and a selection of great lake steelhead junk flies and intruders for fall fishing thank you so much for listening to this podcast again this has been rob snow white with producer jason behind the scenes thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast for more information or to contact rob please go to www.robsnowwhite.com This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. 
Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.